Growing up, I loved going to amusement parks like Six Flags. We had to travel quite a bit to get to Six Flags. I guess we're not so far away from it now in Gurney. Um, but growing up, my sister and I especially, we loved roller coasters. You couldn't put me on a ride that I was, that like was too intimidating. The more intimidating the ride, the better in my opinion. And so when we were planning on going to Six Flags, we had to, we had to wake up super early because we wanted to get there right when it opened up. We're gonna make the most of the whole day. And my sister and I would map out, we'd get one of those maps that you can get on, on the website, you know? We'd, we'd get out a map and see, you know, which roller coaster do we need to, need to go to first? Because there's not as many people at the opening of a park. So you can really, you can kind of knock out some of the big rides right away. And we'd map it all out. We know exactly what we wanted to do, the general order. We had kind of backup plans, our two minute drill, all that stuff. We took it really seriously. In contrast, I went to Six Flags with uh, Anne's family once. It was before we were married, but we, we were all going, and I was kind of expecting us to do the same thing. You know, it's, not, it's kind of expensive going to Six Flags, so you kind of, I'm thinking you make the most of it, right? But we, we kind of got off really late, and uh, I think we had lost some things, and so we're looking around for them, and I'm thinking, like, man, we're taking a really long time. We eventually get to the park, I think, after noon. Like we, it was like we ate dinner, and, or ate lunch, and then went into the park, and uh, so I'm like, this is just a very different style than what I'm used to. And Anne's parents, um, they, they, they went into the park and I think they walked around once and then they went back to their car and like, oh, we've seen it, that was cool. And, and, and we left like super early. And I'm like, what was that? That was just so different than what I'm used to going to Six Flags. Um, in many ways, the book of what we have in our passage today, Judges 2, it's kind of like that map, though. It's kind of like the style that my sister and I would approach, where we want to we know what's going on. We're not kind of entering casually into Six Flags, but we're kind of getting the lay of the land. We're going to plan it all out. Judges 2, our passage today, in many ways is like a map for the rest of the book so that we can navigate it properly and make the most of our reading. Um, first of all, we see that this is a second introduction in the book. You'll notice in verse 6 that all of a sudden Joshua is alive again, although the beginning of the book began with Joshua being dead. And so we've gone back in time, okay, where we've, we've kind of gone through a sequence, and now in, in verse 6 we're going back in time and we're going to retell the same sequence. It's a double introduction. And the Bible does this elsewhere. Like probably the most popular example would be in Genesis, where Genesis 1 gives us the creation depicted in six days, and then chapter 2 goes back and talks about the creation focusing in uniquely on man being created from dust. There's a double introduction there. And so likewise here, we get a double introduction, whereas in chapter one, we have a recounting largely kind of from an on-the-ground perspective of what happened militarily in, the, in this, this insufficient conquest. Now in chapters two and three here, we get sort of the theological explanation of the significance of, of what was happening there, that this is disobedience, that this was a test that they were failing. And the other thing is it's going to present a cycle, a paradigm that then gets carried out throughout the rest of the book, particularly in the judges cycles of chapter 3 verse 7 to the end of chapter 16. The bulk of the book will be these series of six judges that essentially repeat the cycle that's introduced here and we're meant to take this passage as a map for understanding the significance then of those, uh, the rest of the book, for interpreting the rest of the book. 
Okay, I wanna show you that cycle. And I think we have a slide that I put in here that you can kind of see visually this cycle that occurs. First of all, we have idolatry. So look with me at verses 11 through 13 of chapter two. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to those gods and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Okay, so first we see them going after the Lord and or going after the gods of the, of the land and provoking God to anger. And then we see God responding by putting them in oppression, our second part of the cycle. Verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. So idolatry leads to God's discipline of oppression but then we, if you skip down partway through verse 18, we see the people cry out in the midst of this oppression. Verse 18, partway through there, it says, the Lord was moved to pity by the people's groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. And so the people cry out in the midst of the groaning and then God responds with deliverance, the fourth piece of the cycle. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Skip down to verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. And so that's our cycle there. Idolatry leads to oppression. Oppression leads to crying out. God responds to so their crying out with deliverance. But the cycle then just repeats. Look at verse 17. They... Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored or prostituted themselves with other gods and bowed down to those gods. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, as they did not, and they did not do so. Or we'll get verse 19. But whenever the judge died, so after the deliverance happened and the judge dies off, the people turned back and they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of the practices or their stubborn ways. This, this passage kind of makes me think, you know, on, on, if you pull up your smartphone or other music device, you can play music that has that option where you can kind of shuffle or one of the other options besides shuffle is repeat. You can repeat the song or repeat the album. Maybe if you're a parent, you know this. Your kid wants to just listen to let it, let it go from, from frozen over and over and over. There's that repeat symbol where the arrows are kind of going in a circle with the number one. And you're like, can we just be done with this song already? That's what's going on here. This whole passage, just put a repeat symbol over the top of it. We're just going in, we're going in the cycle over and over and over. And so what does God do in response God leaves the nations to test Israel whether she would be faithful to his commands and actually drive the Canaanites out. So look with me then in chapter 2, verse 20 and following. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, and they have not obeyed my voice, 
I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test, notice that, to test Israel by them. Whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left, notice, to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. And I don't think the idea here is merely like, oh, they don't know how to fight, so God's leaving the nation so they can learn how to fight. Understanding this in light of the testing language, it's this idea of who are they going, are they going to trust God in actually going out to fight and take the land? Because in their fighting, in their warring throughout Joshua and Judges, we notice it's God acting supernaturally on their behalf to enable them to take the land. So look down at verse 4 again. We can see this continue. They were for testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commands of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And so you can summarize the claim of this passage, the message of this passage this way, I think. That God remains faithful in disciplining and delivering his people despite their perpetual disobedience. That God remains faithful in disciplining and delivering his people despite their perpetual disobedience. And what I want to do for the rest of our time now is that we have a, a basic grasp of this passage. As I want to look at the passage a little bit thematically now to help us dig into the contours of this message. So first, we're going to look at the nature of Israel's sin, the nature of their sin. Then we're going to look at the nature of their God. And finally, we'll close by looking at the nature of their gospel, the nature of their sin, their God, and their gospel. So let's look at the nature of their sin. The first thing is that we see that sin can often take the form of generational forgetfulness. Maybe you noticed this as uh, Matt was reading the passage, is we have this theme of generations. So you notice in verse 7 that, first of all, first of all that we have the people who did serve the Lord all the days of Joshua. So there's that generation in, ver- in chapter 2, verse 7. All the days of the elders then who outlived Joshua, they're described as those who had seen the great work of the Lord that he had done for Israel. But then in verse 10, we have the generations... Uh, that generation was gathered to their father, and then there arises, notice this, another generation after them, there's a, a transition of generation, and this new generation did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And I, I think what we should understand is not knowing the Lord here, how the, this phrase gets used elsewhere in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that like, oh, they just didn't know about God, but they didn't know God. As the NLT translate this, They did not acknowledge the Lord. They did not live in a way that was acknowledging his authority as the one who had redeemed them. There's a a failure to pass on the faith from the one generation who admittedly followed after God, relatively speaking at least, but they didn't pass it on to the next generation. We see this theme throughout the rest of the passage. In verse 12, we notice that this generation abandons the Lord their God And it's described as the God of their fathers. Or look down at uh, verse 17. Halfway through verse 17, they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, 
who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. Or verse 19, when the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Look at verse 20, partway through there. God says that they've transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers. Or chapter 3, verse 2, it was only in order that the generation of the people of Israel now might know war. Or verse 4, it was for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded to their fathers. Do you notice that language? You have clear distinctions being made between their fathers, the generation prior, and now this new generation that fails to carry the mantle of faith. I think one of the things that we can learn from this is that it only takes one generation to lose the gospel. Obviously, the gospel's uh, continuation is guaranteed by God's sovereignty and his grace. But at least humanly speaking, and the responsibility that we play in passing the gospel on to our children, it only takes one generation to lose the gospel. And so we have a responsibility as parents I think one of the things this passage teaches us is to teach the gospel and pass it on to our kids. It's one of the reasons we want to emphasize uh, the, the, the material that we do in our children's class, why we do highlights here in the morning, to encourage you to be using that information, that material in your own homes with family devotions. They were failing. I mean, if you go to Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6 in many ways serves as like a forecast of their failure. They were absolutely failing to do what Deuteronomy 6 called them to do, which is to pass on the faith. In Deuteronomy 6, the law that was given before they head into the land, verse 7, it says, You shall teach these things diligently to your children. Verse 10, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers. Verse 12, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt. That's exactly what they're doing. And what happens then when they forget their God, when they don't teach their children? Verse 14, you shall not go after other gods, folks. Don't go after the gods of the peoples who are around you because that's inevitably what you're going to do when you forget me. And so we see first that sin can take the form of a generational forgetfulness. Second, we see that sin can take the form of ingratitude. It can be born out of our ingratitude for God's grace. If you notice in verse 12, we have this just terrible irony that they abandon the Lord their God and then it goes on to describe that God. Okay, they're abandoning God. Who is the God they've abandoned? He's the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. You notice the irony? You're abandoning the very God who saved you, who redeemed you out of slavery. Why would you abandon that God? In other words, their forgetfulness is not mere, it's not just intellectual forgetfulness, as we said. It's an ungrateful forgetfulness. And that's because sin is often born out of our ingratitude to the very God who saved us, where we become cold and unappreciative of the salvation he's given to us. We don't live in light of that salvation. We abandon, we turn our face to the very God who has shown us his grace. The third description we can have of sin in this passage is that sin is idolatry. Sin is idolatry. We see them going after the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Now, I really like the New City Catechism that our, kid use, our kids use, the New City Catechism's definition of idolatry. One of the questions in the catechism is, what is idolatry? And it says this. It says, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope 
in happiness, significance, and security. It's trusting in created things rather than God, the creator, for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. And this is exactly what would have been happening in their context. You see, if you don't know anything about uh, the god Baal, or, or Baal as sometimes we pronounce it, um, this was the god of fertility. You see, in the pagan mindset, there were different gods who kind of oversaw different aspects of life. And Baal would have overseen fertility. You worship him, in other words, and he's going, you scratch his back, and he's going to scratch your back by providing you good crops, by giving you fertile ground. And so Baal was a temptation to look to, to say, hey, I want to make sure my land grows. I want to make sure I have food to eat. I want to make sure I can take care of my family. Maybe I can worship him on the side and he can, he can help me out in that way. It's, 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 we may not worship statues, but, but the, the ultimate sort of center of what idolatry is still exists today. There are things that we are trusting in. There are things that we are looking to for our hope, our happiness, our significance, and security. The list could be just super long, but as I thought about this briefly... I think as we look for hope and security, maybe things like money, looking for security in our wealth or our health, maybe we're pursuing health, which of course is a good thing to pursue, but we're looking to it for security in the future. Or maybe things that we're looking to for our significance could be our career or our social status. Things that we look to for happiness might be uh, different avenues of pleasure. We're amusing ourselves. We're numbing ourselves with entertainment or our sense of autonomy. I want to define who I am. That's really big in our culture right now. Or maybe we look to relationships, romantic relationships or friendships for our happiness and sense of significance. Fourthly, we see then that sin is syncretism. Sin sin can take the form of syncretism. And I'll explain what I mean by that. As we think about... uh, the idolatrous worship of Baal, one of the things that we should, we should keep in mind is that you can imagine the Israelites kind of coming into the land. They failed to drive out the Canaanites. And now just imagine a conversation between uh, an Israelite and one of their Canaanite neighbors. That Canaanite neighbor who worships Baal, he goes to his Israelite uh, buddy and he says, you know, I know you guys worship Yahweh. And he, he uh, you know, you guys, you say he brought you out of Egypt, he delivered you, all the, pla- the plagues and kind of bringing you through the Jordan. And that, that's awesome. That's great. Um, you know, that work, that's true for you and that works for you. That's really cool. I'm glad that you found a God that works for you. Um, we here in Canaan, though, we worship a God, Baal, and he's really good for helping us make sure we have our crops. He's the fertility God. And I think it's great that you worship Yahweh. Keep worshiping Yahweh. But maybe you could add a little bit of Baal worship in there too, just to help with the fertility. That would be a good idea. In other words, this wasn't like we might think of it today, where if I'm going to go worship uh, uh, another religion, I sort of say no to Yahweh. It's one or the other. This is what I mean by syncretism. It's the idea that we just kind of incorporate non-Christian ideas into the faith. We just kind of blend them together. And that's what, that's what the worship would have been like in that culture. They would have just adapted other gods. They're not mutually exclusive. Just kind of bring them in. All of them are good. They have their purpose. We see this in the history of Israel. Even when, when Aaron leads the people to make a calf, in the passage, they call that calf the God who brought them out of Egypt. And they then go on to say that they're going to give offerings to Yahweh. It's debatable, but it may be that they actually see the calf 
as Yahweh, as sort of like, a, or another God alongside Yahweh at least. There's syncretism going on. And so we, we think about it today, maybe we think that we haven't rejected God because, well, we're not atheists, we worship God, or I'm not worshiping the God of another religion, but maybe we're smuggling in the quote-unquote religion of our culture, some of the ideas of our culture, the values of our culture, the moral framework and compass of our culture. And what we're doing is we're asking God to coexist with our idols, like the Israelites who wanted to worship Yahweh, but just alongside Baal. And so as I thought about where we might be tempted to do this today, I think on the one hand, we have our culture's um, sort of lax morality. Do we let that sort of infect our thinking? Conceptions of sexuality, how the culture thinks about things like gender, or how the culture wants to redefine or lower our view of marriage. Another one that I think is pretty prevalent is this sort of fusing of our Christian faith with certain American nationalist ideals. So linking Christianity with American nationalism. So just being aware of some of the things that go on in our society that we can kind of just be smuggling into our faith. We're not seeing them as as, as, as sort of throwing out our Christianity, but it's contaminating our Christianity. Fifthly, we see that sin then is worldliness. So as they take on the gods of their surrounding culture, they are becoming like the Canaanites. This is the Canaanization of Israel. This is what we call in scripture worldliness. So Israel was called to be a holy nation, you'll remember. They're called to be distinct so that they can call the nations to become like them in worshiping the true God. But instead, they are the ones becoming like the nations, not the other way around. They lose their ability to witness to the nations when they just blend in with the nations. And this is when we come to the New Testament. If you remember James, when he's defining true religion, he says, on the one hand, it's taking care of what it should look like in your life is that you take care of the vulnerable, like widows and orphans. But the other piece is that it is being um, abstaining from the impurity of the world. It's keeping oneself unstained from the world. That's fundamental to the religion of Yahweh is that you are distinct, you are a holy nation, as Peter goes on to say, even of the church. That we are to remain distinct from culture and not merely blend in with it. Six, we see that sin is spiritual prostitution. Verse 17, it says that they did not listen to their judges, and in the ESV it says they whored after these other gods. It could literally be said that they prostituted themselves out to these other gods. And this is, this is an absolutely disgusting imagery of sin. Don't let, don't let yourself just kind of move past that too quickly. On the one hand, this is, this is meant to, to show us that sin is unfaithfulness to God. We get this image across the Bible where God uses the picture of, of marriage. Talking to Carlos and Brenda as we're doing premarital counseling, you know, they're getting ready for marriage. And the beauty of the picture of marriage as a picture of Christ and the church, or God and his people. We get this across both testaments. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or in Revelation, the end of Revelation, you got the, the, the great prostitute or the whore. And that's in contrast to the, uh, the New Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb. And so idolatry and sin, then in scripture, is on the flip side, compared to being unfaithful 
to our God, unfaithful to our husband, so to say. Hosea is probably the most popular example of this, where God uses the life of the prophet Hosea, if you know Hosea, where he marries this prostitute. And, that, and Hosea is then, in his very life, is meant to serve as a living illustration of how God is pursuing an unfaithful people. People who have turned their back. That when we sin against God, that's the picture he wants us to have in our mind. That we are, we are cheating on God. We are being unfaithful to God. We are committing adultery against him. The other thing that I want us not to miss with this imagery of prostitution, though, is that when someone prostitutes themselves, they are looking to get something out of their lover. They're looking to get something from their quote-unquote lover. I'll sleep with you if you provide X in return to me. But the thing is, is that these lovers don't actually care one bit about you. They simply want to use and abuse you. And that's the same thing that happens with us and our idols, that we look to our idols in order to give us something, give me happiness, give me significance, give me security. And we look to them to give us something in exchange for our worship. I'll worship you if you, if you give me those things. But in actuality, our idols only end up using and abusing us. They seek to employ us in their service but they end up making us their, or we seek to employ them in serving us and our needs, but they end up employing us in their service, making us their slaves. And so number seven, we learn that sin is bondage. Sin brings bondage. You'll notice the irony in this passage, that the very gods, get this, the very gods that the Israelites chased after are the very same gods of the people who then turn and oppress them. Like some good gods they were, they're not saving you, they're oppressing you. The gods betrayed them, the gods have now enslaved them. And is there a better demonstration of the truth that idolatry always leads to our enslavement? Our idols promise us happiness and security, just like Baal promised fertility. And so we go after the idols looking for freedom, but in the end they only end up putting us in bondage. The gods that we whore ourselves out to, the lovers that we prostitute ourselves to, they end up being our abusers. And so eighthly, we see that sin is serious. Sin is deadly serious. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, partway through, it says that they went after these other gods from among the gods of the people. Notice this little line. The people who were around them, okay? They go after the gods from among the people who were around them. Well, I wonder how that happened. How did the people end up being around them? Well, you remember from last week, they failed to sufficiently drive them out. It didn't seem like a very big deal at the time, though. What's, I mean, that, 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 those people over there are really powerful. Maybe we'll just leave them alone. That seems like a smart thing. Or these people over here are really weak. We don't have to drive them out. That doesn't seem like a big deal. That seems reasonable. It doesn't seem like a big deal at the time. But now the landmines are going off. It has become the prelude to apostasy. And as I was thinking about this in small group, um, I can't remember what, what the question was. Maybe it was like one of the what aspect of this passage do we find the most challenging? Um, and I was thinking for myself, just it's so easy, even though like the passage is telling me this, it's just so easy not to actually believe it. 
It's easy to then be like, yeah, 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 this passage really shows that sin is serious and that if you just leave it and you don't really deal with it, you don't eradicate evil, like, that's going to be bad. And then we go on and we rationalize our sin. We tolerate our sin. We don't view it as bad as we should. At least I think that's a challenge for myself that maybe you can relate to. This passage wants to show us how serious sin really is, though. And then lastly, number nine, sin is perpetual. Sin is cyclical. We keep repeating the pattern, in other words. So as soon as they get relief from their situation and the judge dies, they go right back into their sin. Verse 19 of chapter 2, whenever the judge died, they don't respond in appreciation for the relief God gave them, but they return back and were more corrupt than their fathers. It actually gets worse. It's like if you ever, uh, maybe when you're a student, or maybe if you are a student, when your teacher left the room, you know, you find out what the kids are really like. I think I saw like a video on Zoom where there's, you know, learning over Zoom right now for a lot of, a lot of kids, and the teacher signed out of Zoom, and all of a sudden the kids just go crazy, okay? When the teacher leaves, you find out the true character of the children, and we often do the same thing. When all of a sudden the pressure or the discipline is lifted, we fail to appreciate the grace right after we receive it. And scripture warns in in 2 Corinthians 7.10 of this sort of worldly sorrow that's only, it seems, sorry for the consequences of sin, but is not genuinely remorseful and repentant of the sin itself. And when we look at Israel and their, their, their pattern of sin, I mean, I, I, I don't think we can, I, we can't help but see ourselves in it, right? That how often do we experience this sort of cycle in our own life? As, as Proverbs 26 says, the, the, fool, the fool who goes back to their sin is like the dog who returns to their vomit. This pattern shows us that spiritual decline is not sort of the accidental thing that happens. It's not the occasional thing that happens. It's the default setting in our operating system. We need God's intervening and restraining grace. Our default default is always to go back to sin. The only way we avoid that is by God's grace intervening in our life, breaking that cycle and restraining us. We need a deliverer who can break the power of sin once and for all. That these deliverers, God uses them to break, to, to break them out of their, their oppression. But as soon as that deliverer dies, they go right back into it. And so one of the things that the book of Judges is, is screaming to us is, we need a judge, we need a king, we need a deliverer who will deliver us sufficient, sufficiently once and for all. Who will not die, but will reign forever and defeat sin once and for all. And of course, we're not going to find that deliver within the pages of the book of Judges. But when we get to the gospel in the New Testament, Jesus Christ. So we've looked at the nature of sin. Now let us look at the nature of God. The first thing I want us to note about the nature of God in this passage is that we see a God who is gracious. God is gracious. He gives us deliverance. Despite all of what we've looked at, despite our sin, God nonetheless raises up deliverers. You should notice the contrast, okay? Don't just notice that God is raising up deliverers, but notice how unexpected it should be in light of the fact that he's gone on talking about how the people went after other gods. What you would expect is, oh, they go after other gods and God just punishes them and leaves them. 
It's unexpected that we read that he raises up a judge. Like that comes out of nowhere. Why would he do that? Certainly not based on anything in them. That if any good is accomplished in the book of Judges, of God, of God relieving them from their oppression, it, it's certainly not due to them, but only God alone. It's God who instigates. It's not we who first get ourselves and our act together. It's God who, who, who instigates and intervenes and carries out deliverance on our behalf even when we weren't looking for it. God treats us not on the basis of what we deserve, judgment, but with deliverance. He gives us grace that is undeserved. And it's, it's born out of God's compassion. The people are groaning in, in, in verse 18. This is the same word that it's used only twice elsewhere, and it's used in the Exodus when the people are groaning under their oppression. That God's not responding to them because of anything righteous in them, but because they groan. That's what we have to offer, is groaning under the weight of the sin that we ourselves committed. And so we too, we, we have a God who has given us undeserved grace, a God who has given us deliverance in Christ, despite the fact that all we've done, the only, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And God has given us Christ. So we see God is gracious. Secondly, we see God is faithful. God could have just let the Israelites be. But instead, God pursues them. So think about it. The, the, the Israelites, they broke their covenant agreement with God. Why doesn't God just return the favor? You violate the covenant. You don't hold up your end. I'm not going to hold up my end. I'm just going to leave you. You want those other gods? Have those other gods. But rather, God chases after them. Why? Because despite their sin, God has promised never to give up on them. Go back to our passage from last week, Judges chapter 2, verse 1. God says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said this, I will never break my covenant with you. We're talking in small group about one of the, what part of the passage you find the most encouraging. And as I thought about it, that, that was my answer right there. I will never break my covenant with you. This is, in, this is in the face of Israel disobeying God and violating their end of the covenant. And God says, I'm never going to break my covenant with you. This is the covenant that finds its fulfillment in Christ and the new covenant for us. He's never going to break his covenant. And so instead of, of abandoning them and leaving them to their own devices, God disciplines them in order to win them back and to bring them to repentance, okay? So what does this mean? In this passage, when God is putting them in oppression, when God is having people plunder them, this is God's discipline. This is God handing them over to their enemies as an actual expression of his love. He's never giving up chasing after them, that God is relentlessly pursuing his people, this oppression is a demonstration of his love and to never give up on them. As one commentator puts it, he says, quote, this giving over to the enemy should be understood ultimately as the Lord's kindness to his people. In each instance, Israel eventually repents under the weight of her oppression and returns to the Lord. This is key. 
if the Lord did not discipline his people in this way, they would be wholly lost and left to remain in their sin. This is severe mercy. His discipline, even his punishment, is a grace meant to awaken them. The alternative would just be to abandon them. And this is the only basis of hope that even we have, that, 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 that God is the one who is faithful to pursue us, because it's certainly not us who is pursuing him. Because he is faithful and will never give up and he will chase us no matter what, there is hope. Left to our own vices, we would simply repeat the cycle. But hope is found in his faithfulness. Thirdly, we see that God is jealous. This passage teaches us that God is jealous. His discipline is an expression of his jealous love for the Israelites. Again, using this imagery of prostitution brings up the idea of marriage. And if you, if you had a, a couple before you, and let's say the, the wife was unfaithful to the husband and she, she had an, an affair with, uh, and, and cheated on her husband, she committed adultery against him. If you came up to that husband and, and he had found out about it, it was, it was obvious, there's no debating whether this happened, we all know it happened, and you're talking to this husband, and he just seemed like he didn't even care about it, like it's no big deal. You'd probably say that there's something wrong with that husband, that a husband who truly loves his wife is going to be rightfully jealous over his wife. We think of jealousy sometimes as a negative, but sometimes it's a positive when that jealousy is appropriate. And so that is God's jealousy for us, for his people. Tim Keller said this, he says, in his anger, God's anger is not opposed to his love. It is the expression of his love. It is because God loves his people and cares about his relationship with them that he responds with right anger when they turn from him and prostitute themselves. See, God is unlike Baal or the other Canaanite deities or the, the gods that, that tempt us today. He does not tolerate any rival god. If you were to go to the Canaanites, uh, they would have been fine with saying, yeah, worship Yahweh, worship these other gods. But as soon as you say Yahweh says we must worship him and him alone, there's a claim to exclusivity. He is the God not over, only over fertility but over the entire universe, the God who made heavens and the earth and everything within them. He, he deserves our exclusive, exclusive worship. You see, God doesn't tolerate us having side chicks. He demands our exclusive worship. Contrary to our whoring ourselves out to these competing idols. And so we've seen the nature of sin. We've seen the nature of our God. Let's close as we look at the nature of, of the gospel. One of the questions that we're left kind of wrestling with then is, is how we reconcile some of these things. So God has told us that he's not in any way going to abandon his covenant. He's, he's committed himself and he's unilaterally, on his behalf only, it, it depends entirely on him, he's unilaterally guaranteed to bless his people with the promises of his covenant. He's going to fulfill his covenant. He's going to remain faithful to bless them. And yet, he's also sworn, in verse 15, we say that he's sworn to discipline him, to bring on the curses of the covenant when his people stray. So how are we going to reconcile these things? Did you see the tension? Like, I'm going to bless you, but if you're disobedient, I'm also going to curse you. Well, these people are kind of perpetually disobedient. So how is he ever going to bless? 
We see this sort of tension elsewhere in scripture in Exodus 34 when God is revealing himself to Moses. You remember he kind of, God puts Moses behind this rock and he shows, he makes his goodness pass before Moses and he declares his name. One of the ways that God describes himself is he says, I'm, I'm a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Awesome. A God who forgives our sin. And then right after that, it says, but who will by no mere means clear the guilty. Well, God, how can you forgive and also by no means clear the guilty? How can God remain faithful to bring about his covenant promises while his people persist in disobedience that demands discipline? This is a tension that exists across the whole Old Old Testament, no less as we read the book of Judges. On the one hand, God is holy and he is just and he cannot tolerate evil. He must punish evil, even in, or we might even say especially in, his own people. On the other hand, God is loving and faithful and he will never forsake his people that he's pledged himself to. And so as the people of Israel continue in sin throughout the book of Judges, we're really meant to be left hanging in suspense. Like, will God's justice win out on them? But then what of his love and his faithfulness? Or will God's faithfulness win out? But then what of his justice and his holiness? And of course, the final answer comes in Christ himself. And the cross, whereas Paul says in Romans 3.26, that God can both be just, he can be righteous, and the justifier, the one that forgives us of our sins, the one that declares us righteous, even though we ourselves are not righteous. How? Through the demonstration of righteousness in the cross. That God can forgive us of our sins, and by no means clear the guilty, because he takes that punishment out on his son. He clears us of our sin, not by ignoring our sin, but by dealing the death blow to Jesus. Christ is the faithful covenant partner that was always demanded for the blessings of the covenant. He is the obedient Adam. He is the obedient Israel. He is the one who was incarnate under the law to obey the law perfectly on our behalf. And then not only does he fulfill all righteousness, every obedience that we ever owed to God, he fulfills. But then he also takes care of all the disobedience that we committed under his law. The gospel is how this tension is solved between God's guaranteed promise and our perpetual disobedience, which makes it impossible to experience. Because Christ puts his obedience in place of our disobedience. And so this is the gospel that this passage anticipates. And as these people had their own, you might say, gospel, all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel in bringing them out of Egypt, ultimately their sin was that they suffered from a gospel amnesia, you might say. They suffered from a gospel amnesia. In verse 7, the people of Joshua's day had seen the great work of the Lord and so they followed after Yahweh. But then in verse 10, we have a people who came afterwards who did not know Yahweh or the work he had done for Israel. They suffered from a gospel amnesia. Amnesia is memory loss, as you probably know, and one of the effects I imagine that that has is that you can no longer operate according to what's true of you. You forget things about yourself. And if you don't know certain things, if you're forgetting certain things, you can't operate based on, those, based on that knowledge. 
And so gospel amnesia likewise always produces apostasy. Amnesia produces apostasy. Peter warns of this in, of false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2 where he talks about these false teachers, notice, who deny the very master who bought them. The one who bought them, they deny. And likewise, the New Testament, oftentimes in appealing to us and how we live differently now as Christians, what does it do? It reminds us of the gospel. It reminds us of what is true of us in the gospel. Romans 6, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. You've died to sin. Don't you know what your baptism declares to you? That you've died to sin and you've been raised with Christ to live in a new way of living. Likewise, Colossians 3 says, put sin to death. Why? Because you have died with Christ. Live in light of what's true of you. Don't have gospel amnesia. Live in light of what is true in the gospel. And so we believers, though, it shows us that we, this passage, among other things, shows us that we have a desperate need to constantly be reminded of God's grace to us and the gospel. Just as 2 Peter talks about these false teachers who deny the master who bought them, right before that, in chapter 1, Peter goes on and on to say, I'm writing to stir you up by way of remembrance. I want to remind you. I know you know these things already, but I want to remind you so I can stir you up in them. And that's what we have every week in the Lord's Supper, is a reminder of the gospel that shapes our identity, that declares who we are, that gives us the power to live differently.